You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, welcome to Her Money. So I'm sure that many of you listening joined me in turning back the clocks last weekend to signify the end of daylight savings time, a move that often brings up the subject of sleep and makes it once again a national conversation. According to the CDC, we know that insufficient sleep is a public health epidemic in the United States. And for those of us who sacrifice sleep for both important reasons like work and family and less important ones like those late night World Series games or spending too many hours trolling the internet, you got to start to think about it this way. Getting enough sleep isn't an option. It is just as essential as food and oxygen. When I was writing Age Proof with Dr. Mike Royzen, one of the things that I learned was that not getting enough leads to your heart, your brain, your kidneys, and your immune system all functioning not as well as they should. Plus, it brings on impotence and wrinkles, and I am not sure which is worse. Here to give us a wake-up call is my friend Nancy Rothstein. She is known as the Sleep Ambassador, and she consults. She goes out and talks to the public. She does media engagements. She writes. But basically, all of the things that she's involved in revolve around empowering people to sleep more and to sleep better because the one-third of our lives that we spend sleeping profoundly impacts the two-thirds that we spend awake. Hi, Nancy. Hi. How are you, Jean? I'm thrilled to be with you. Oh, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. Nancy and I know each other because we are both on the Trustees Council of Penn Women at the University of Pennsylvania. We are proud Quakers. Proud. And I got to see Nancy deliver her talk on sleep to that audience, and I've been wanting to get her on the podcast ever since. And here I am, and thank you. Thank you for doing this. So I know you've had many acts. How did you become a sleep expert? It's a great question. So my daughter was in kindergarten, the youngest, who is now 26. And I was yawning and falling asleep helping in her kindergarten classroom because my ex was snoring up a storm. (laughs) And I took out a piece of construction paper and I wrote the original draft to my daddy snores. Fast forward. Which was a children's book. Yes, a children's picture book. Fast forward. Scholastic Books publishes it. 400,000 copies later. Why? Because it's an issue in homes everywhere. And Long story short, I morphed a career in financial risk management to recognizing that sleep was a risk management issue in the corporate world. 
So my first book was on hedging interest rate risk, and now all I talk about is sleep as a risk management issue to major corporations and individuals, etc. Well, explain that. I mean, that's a big concept, sleep as a risk management issue. Yes. So from a corporate perspective, yes, but from, from an individual, individual perspective, perspective, how you sleep. And I was thinking about this coming in today, and I've never said it like this, but it not only is how you feel, behave, and your health today but it's going to impact it tomorrow and for your future. And I'd like to say, because it, and it alludes to something you started with, and that is our behaviors have changed, not our biology. It would take thousands of years for our biology to accommodate our crazy, wired, and tired habits. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to enforce our behaviors on our biology and our biology saying, time out, this isn't working, this isn't sustainable, you're going to have to change your behaviors and get the sleep you need. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because the devices that we keep by our bedsides, mm-hmm. even the television in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. I, when I was growing up, did my parents have a television in the bedroom? I Black think, and white, maybe, and not as yeah. bright. It wasn't the same kind of lighting that our TVs have today. And that, you're so on target because that's a perfect example of our biology not having changed. The blue light that comes from the screen and that close little cell phone in your face or your laptop in your bed is sending a signal to the smallest little organ in your body, the pineal gland, saying, stay alert, we're not going to sleep. And suddenly you're like awake. And your melatonin, which regulates your sleep-wake cycle, light and dark, is saying, got to stay up now. So now you've just totally thrown off your biology. And you talked about the clock change. That's our internal body clock. Mm-hmm. And so we are very attuned. And three scientists just got a Nobel Prize about our circadian rhythm. So we have to start listening. So how do we start to figure out, A, if we're one of the people who has a problem? I mean, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've listened to you talk and, and I've not always taken all of the advice, but I watch TV before I go to sleep at night. I keep my phone by my bedside table, and it's the first thing I reach for in the morning, even though my husband says every day that is no way to wake up. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in a hotel, because I'm traveling for work, I don't even turn the television off. I just leave it on all night because I don't like to be alone in a hotel room. so sweet. Oh, my gosh. So it's, you know, I leave it on the Food Network, and I, you know, Ted Allen just chops all night long. Gene. Close your eyes for a second and wave your hand in front of your face. And anybody listening, unless you're driving, do the same. I can same. see it and you I can it? feel it. So you are processing that light all night. Your ears, your beautiful, lovely ears, instead of resting, are hearing all the noise from that TV. And your brain can't do its nighttime work, which is, as we know now, which is to me one of the most exciting things about sleep I've learned, is our brain has a cleansing mechanism in it. And when we don't get the sleep we need, the quality and quantity, it's like our brain's a dirty kitchen because we're not flushing it as we do. It's called the glymphatic system. And it's absolutely fascinating, which is another reason, a clear reason why a good night's sleep is essential. But back to the TV, I want you to experiment for a week. Okay. For a week where you turn it off and start with 15 minutes, then a half hour, ultimately an hour where your phone is not next to your bed and where it's off. Because you're just impeding your melatonin from doing its night work. Can you read before you? I mean, that's what I did when I was a child. I used to read before I went to bed. 
I am so happy you asked that because the biggest question I get, particularly from millennials, even though they're screaming out, because LinkedIn's my client, our client at Circadian Corporate Sleep Programs, and LinkedIn millennials are all saying, I can't keep this up. So I love that. But what are you going to, but everybody says, particularly millennials, well, what am I going to do for an hour? You're going to read. You're going to look at that hour as a time for you. Take a shower, take a bath. I mean, if you want to practice mindfulness, a great place to do it is in the shower and just feel and appreciate the water coming over you. And then read in bed with a dim light, not on a device. That was the next question. Can I read on my Kindle? If it's not backlit? It's a paper white, so I think it is backlit. Yeah. So you could reverse the screen to the screen being black and the letters being white. You'll reduce about 85, 90% of it. But I would just try a book. See what happens. Or a magazine. Think of that. Love magazines. Think of that. All right, let's talk a little bit about the impact of not getting enough sleep. How does sleep affect our productivity and our profitability? So sleep is an investment. It's an investment in how you're going to feel during your waking hours. And we all know when we're tired, we're not as alert. And this is all research-based. Our judgment, our decision-making our reaction time, they're all thrown off. And so when you get enough sleep, you're rejuvenating and you're resuscitating your body so that it can, during your waking hours, be more productive. One in three U.S. workers has insomnia, whether that's bona fide insomnia or just poor sleep habits, but it's leading to what they call presenteeism. What is that? Presenteeism means you're at work, but you're not really there. You're not functioning at your optimum. And do people know it? I mean, I I read that many people think they're functioning just fine, but in fact, they're not. No. In fact, there's been some studies at Harvard where they had students sleep deprived and they were ready. Oh, I can drive. I'm fine. And people actually think from a decision-making perspective, like people who get off a plane, fly overseas for seven, 10 hours, and they get off the plane and they go to make a big decision in a meeting. Not a good idea because you're not really astutely awake and aware. So how can you recognize in yourself that you have a problem? So that is a very good question. There's a few things. Do you need caffeine to stay up during the day? Do you need naps? Do you fall asleep at the wheel a little bit or certainly not off? Do you fall asleep at movies? And also, are you taking, and I'm an MBA after my name, not an MD, but are you taking sleep supplements and why? You know, the the question is, do you really need something or do you just have poor sleep habits so that you're not getting the sleep you need or you're doing something that's causing you to take some kind of a sleep aid when in fact, if you had better sleep habits, you might. And listened to your body. Does a glass of wine count? It does count. I'm really happy you brought that up. A glass of red wine or whatever before bed may help you fall asleep, but it's going to play havoc with your sleep cycles. That's fact. Same thing with caffeine. If you have trouble falling asleep or even staying asleep, bye-bye caffeine. I would say three, four in the afternoon. Many scientists would say noon. Yeah, I don't, I don't drink coffee past noon. But wine is a, it's a big issue. What about at dinner? I'm I'm going to fight you for my glass of wine here. (laughs) You know, if you're having dinner at 8 o'clock and going to bed at 10, it's a problem. If you're having dinner at 6 or 7 or 8 and you're going to bed at 11 or 12, fine. But the real question, Jean, we're all different. 
How do you feel? How's your sleep? So if the wine, you know, if you said, you know, I notice on the nights that I don't have a glass of wine, I get up feeling more rested. There's your answer. Yeah, it doesn't solve my problem. <laughs> um, we can I, solve your problem. We can solve. We can solve my sleep problem. This is not all about me. Biologically, though, as a woman, do I need more sleep than a man? I mean, in my house, it's totally the opposite. My husband is a champion sleeper. Yay. Yay him. Well, I'm not going to put this in terms of gender, how it makes a difference, because it really is the individual. I can't really say that. But people need to get a baseline. They need to get, I, I just said this a few weeks ago for the first time, people need to get intimate with their sleep. They need to take a really close look. When we're working with corporations and our clients in like four-week sleep improvement programs, mm-hmm. we'll give people a baseline. I call it taking your sleep inventory. And you get a sense of like, well, what are my issues? And then you, you know, you, you don't change your sleep overnight. You can change something like not looking at your phone before bed quickly or not looking at the clock in the middle of the night if you wake up, because then your brain's having a heyday moving. You know, If it's before three, you're like, oh, I have four more hours of sleep. If it's after three, I'm never going to fall asleep and I'm going to be exhausted tomorrow, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you have to really know, you know, male, female, you have to know what works for you. Okay. We're going to talk about investing in our sleep when we come back. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives because we deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Nancy Rothstein. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or trying to get a good night's sleep. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We are talking with Nancy Rothstein, the sleep ambassador. You mentioned your clients and that LinkedIn is a client. Explain to me, I mean, you work with big companies who hire you to help make sure that their employees are getting a good night's sleep. So what's the over-under for them? The over-under for them, I said earlier, I said something about sleep as a risk management issue. And there's a return on investment. If a company invests, which they do, millions, billions of dollars in training and investment and in acquiring skill sets, and the employee, which a large percentage do come to sleep with inadequate sleep, sleep-deprived, then all of those skills and all of that training and development is compromised. So we also have to remember Every employee at any company is a member of the public. And you said at the beginning, this is a public health epidemic, and it is. So we're bringing that to work with us. And how you sleep at home or on the road, traveling for business, directly impacts how you function at work. So companies are starting to realize, you know, they invested in nutrition and fitness, but the one that impacts employees the most is sleep. So it behooves them to offer training and education about sleep so that their workforce can be optimized. It's much the same logic, I think, that is encouraging companies to invest in financial wellness. I just wrote a note to myself a second ago to talk about that. I've been hearing more and more from clients and prospects and at conferences I speak at that Financial wellness is being looked at more as a pillar of wellness. Yeah. And I agree completely that it should be. But 
if you're not getting good sleep, all those financial issues and concerns and worries are going to be heightened because you're not thinking so clearly. You're more under stress. And I think they go really hand in hand. Well, I think they all go hand in hand. I think health and wealth and sleep, they all go hand in hand. And what happens is when any of the above are not functioning, when you're under health stress or mm-hmm. when you're under financial stress, no the question. sleep starts to go and the cycle perpetuates. A hundred percent. If I didn't say it already, you have to look at your sleep as an investment. Well, on that note, can we talk about mattresses? Happy to. Okay. So you can buy a mattress now that costs under $1,000 and comes to your house in a box that you unroll. Yep. But you can also go to a high-end mattress store and spend $20,000 on a mattress that they'll tell you you will pass along to your children. Right. I I mean, I don't – where is – where's the sweet spot? How much should you invest in a mattress and how do you buy one that will actually suit you? I love this question. I love talking about mattresses because I was interviewed not too long ago about how do you select a mattress and I said – you have to look at as mattress as an investment. Where do you spend more time, in your car or on your bed? Hopefully on your bed. Yes. And yet people will spend, I always say, what do you think an inexpensive car costs? And I hear, you know, 15000 20000 If you say you're going to buy a king mattress for $4,000, somebody looks at you like, are you kidding me? Regardless of what they can afford. But bottom line on this you need to buy the best mattress you can afford. Now, if you're a student living in, you know, you're a student and you're in a dorm, they probably provide it. But you've got your first job in New York City, you're in a walk-up, buy a bed in a box. This is not your lifetime mattress. You want to buy the best mattress you can afford. And the quality is important because it's going to impact Lots of aspects of your sleep. Is it, so when it comes to quality, is it coils? Is it, I mean, we hear about thread count when it comes to sheets. Sheets. What's the equivalent with mattresses and where does the foam mattress come into the equation? So it's all about pressure point release, support, and comfort. One person's going to want a really firm mattress and another person's going to say, I feel like I'm sleeping on a wooden board. I need something that gives a little bit more give. So it depends on the person. It also depends on how you are sleeping. Are you on your side, on your back? And don't leave out the pillow as an investment. Well, that's that was my next question. But I want to make sure I answered the mattress situation. So the point is... You don't have to spend 20000 on a mattress. If you can and you want to, and we're not going to mention names, but go for it. But I say it's the secret to a good night's sleep, and it's hidden in the bedroom. People can spend oodles of money on a gorgeous bedroom or on a house or an apartment. They should always escrow enough money for a good mattress. Should you be going to the mattress store to try it out? I had this experience where um, my husband and I replaced our mattress uh, we got a, a new, this is sad. We got a new bed frame mm-hmm. because so it's either sad or it's a little pathetic. And those dog lovers in the, in the oh, audience gosh. will laugh at this. But my cockapoo is 12 years old and he could no longer jump, jump. to the bed. And There's I really, stairways. Did uh, you yeah, know I wasn't doing the stairways. I might do my the stairways when that. he's 15 years old, but I was not doing the stairways. And we wanted a different bed anyway. So we got a king 
and I ordered the mattress from the bed company because they said this is our most popular. It's firm. He sat on it. My husband sat on it when they delivered it, and I had them take it back then and there because it was it was nothing near firm. And then you said the magic words. I sent it back. You do not want to buy a mattress that's not returnable. Let the company decide what they're going to do with it after you return it. That's another issue. But you never want to buy a mattress. You can't. My mother, for example, bought a mattress. She's in incredible shape at 93. And maybe four or five years ago, she bought a new mattress and it was terrible for her. She was aching. Bloomingdale switched it. She got a new mattress. It was great. So please, everybody, if you buy a mattress, make sure it's returnable. Because how can you decide by buying it online or in a store for 10 minutes how it's going to be, and how it's going to be for two people if you have a bed partner. So you should buy it in the store if you can? If you can buy it in the store, and if you buy it online or a bed in a box, just make sure they have a return policy where you're not penalized. And how about pillows? I mean, pillows are, you can buy two for $10 at a big box store, or you can buy one for $150. So again, where's the over-under? The important thing about a pillow, again, is alignment for your neck and for your head. If you sleep on your side, you don't want your head torquing with a really thin pillow. You don't want a really thick foam type pillow where your neck, you want good alignment. You know, that angle for your neck and your head and your shoulders is very important. Shoulders shouldn't be on the pillow. If you sleep on your back, which is some would say if you're pregnant, you're not going to sleep on your back. If you have reflux, you're not going to sleep on your back. But the best thing about sleeping on your back is you, no circulation is compromised. You know, that's why, like savasana and yoga. Yeah. But if you sleep on your back, you don't want your pillow too high because then your neck torques. So I actually have two pillows in my, at least two pillows in my bed all the time because I switch positions from my back to my side. And it may, in the middle of the night, I, or usually I'm not up in the middle of the night, but I may switch pillows one night. But I'm very picky about sleeping position and your pillow. And it's important to have a good one. How bad is it if you're a stomach sleeper? If you tell me you're never tired and you get a great night's sleep and you sleep on your stomach, then that's great. But it can be really hard on the back over time. And I will also say if you sleep on your side and you like my bottom leg stays straight and the top one bends, I have a pillow under my knee because otherwise my back's going to torque and I'm going to feel it. So if I was somewhere and I had one pillow, it would be under my knee and not under my head. So you have to find, you know, what works for you. And if you sleep on your stomach and you're feeling okay and you have no aches and pains, then you're going to sleep on your stomach, but not the best. Just back to the money for a second. Is there a minimum amount of money you should try to spend on a pillow to get a decent pillow? You could spend $300 on a pillow. I'm never spending $300 on a pillow. Or $50 on a pillow (laughs) or $20 on a pillow. But here's what you don't want Spend what you want to spend or can spend. But somebody said, I love my pillow. I've had it for 30 years. And I was like, no. Whatever pillow you have, get a pillow protector that, you know, it's a zipper case over your pillow before your pillowcase. Because how many times have we gone to somebody's house or somewhere? You're not going to get that in a hotel. And you change the pillowcase and the pillow is all yellowed. Well, How often should you replace the pillows? That depends on the quality of the pillow. Some would say every six months to a year. I don't think that oh my has God, to be. Oh, God, I'm so overdue. Right. That doesn't have to be the case. You have to look at the condition. That's why I say a zipper case because you can wash that. But it also depends on the quality of the pillow, how how long it's going to last. I have a pillow right now that has like a 10-year warranty because it's 
made with a special gel and it's terrific. But again, it depends on the pillow. Fascinating conversation. Okay. In the last minute that we have left, what is your number one piece of advice for getting better sleep? So the one that comes to me that doesn't cost anything and that has a huge amount, a huge impact, good impact on people is don't look at the clock if you awaken during the night. Just turn it around. And I would have to add to that, just take your phone out of the bedroom or across the bedroom and don't look at any of those screens for at least a half an hour at first, ultimately an hour before sleep, so that you, in both cases, free yourself from time, free yourself from technology, and give yourself the transition and the peace of sleep. That would really be it. Nancy Rothstein, thank you so much. Where thank can you. we find more about you? So go to thesleepambassador.com. And that will lead to anybody interested in the corporate side will lead to circadian corporate sleep programs. But happy to help anybody because we all need a good night's sleep. Excellent. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. Nice to see you. You look very well rested. Thank you. I don't know why. I am not well rested these days, as, as was clear with my conversation with Nancy. I don't know. I'm just not sleeping well. I mean, I do think I'm having a pillow issue. Do tell. I I just, I think it's time. I think it's time to replace them. How old is it? Well, you know, it's Be old. Honest. I don't know. Honest. The, the honest answer is I don't know. I don't know. Okay. And I have two and they end up off the bed and on the bed. I'm just not sleeping so well. I'm sorry. That's all right. I'll get over it. With my pillow, I do the Tempur-Pedic mm-hmm. pillows and... It's like the built-in measurement of how flat it becomes. So that's when I know, like, the more it weighs down and the flatter it gets, that's when I need to get the new pillow. It's like running shoes. Yes, exactly. It's like running shoes. And I have a huge, heavy head, so it takes about a year, and then I need a new one. <laughs> oh, my God. People who are listening, first of all, Kelly is beautiful, six feet oh tall. And, huge head. And <laughs> you're, you're six feet tall. You, you know, in per, your head is proportional to the rest of you. I hope so. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <you. laughs> okay, let's answer some questions. Our first question is from Betsy. She writes, I have about 35000 in credit card debt after a divorce. Am I better off using the 0% options that I am sent from my current card companies or utilizing a personal loan that I can get through my bank? The bank is offering me 25000 Is it bad for my credit score if I use the entire 25000 of that loan, or should I only use a portion of that limit, similar to the advice with credit cards? So let's just back up, because if somebody's offering you 0% and you can keep that going for a while... Just take the zero percent. I mean, whatever you are being charged on that personal loan, and she didn't say, but it's probably six, seven percent. That would be my guess. It's much more than you'd pay doing the repayment at zero percent. So if you can lock into zero percent for 18 months and you can make considerable headway against your debt, I would do that. I wouldn't use your credit cards. I would just make sure that you're paying down rather than bulking back up. And as far as the personal loan goes, no, these are limits really for credit cards. And if you take out a personal loan for the purpose of paying off your credit cards, just use it, pay off your credit cards. 
Got it. Okay. Thank you, Betsy. Good luck. Next one is from Kay. What is the best type of account to use for emergency fund savings? My husband and I are currently putting away the maximum $18,000 per person in our 401k accounts. In addition to maxing out our 401ks, we're wanting to grow our emergency fund. But my husband doesn't want to have any money, in quotations, sitting around in a low interest savings account. Currently, we have about $5,000 in a credit union savings account, which we'd ideally like to grow to $20,000. What would be your recommendation for an account to keep our emergency funds in. So this is a really, really good question. Emergencies, by definition, happen when you don't expect them to happen and may require you to get your hands on a large sum of money very quickly. That means it shouldn't be in a CD. It shouldn't be in stocks that could lose value. It shouldn't be in some asset where you might have to go through a process to sell it. But by the same token, if we're really talking about emergency, emergency money, I don't necessarily want to see it in some high interest rate checking account across the country. I don't want to see it in an internet bank necessarily, because it might take you two to three days to transfer that money back to your brick and mortar bank to pull it out because those accounts sometimes don't come with an ATM card. That's not accessible enough for me. And so I get what your husband is saying, and I understand the frustration of leaving money sit at a very, very low interest rate at your corner credit union or your corner bank, although your corner credit union is likely to be better than your corner bank. But I'd leave the 5000 where it is. And then if you want to put the money away at a higher interest rate, Open a second account at a higher interest rate. If you can find one across the country, go to bankrate.com or cardhub.com. Actually, it's not cardhub.com. It's wallethub.com. And look for the best rate that you can find, knowing that you've got that $5,000 that's truly liquid at the ready that you could access in an afternoon if you need it. Great. And then our last question is... I should say, questions have to do with the proposed Rothification of 401ks. Yeah, we got so many of those that we decided just to make this into the Thrive. And just a caveat before I do this, because the world is changing around us really, really quickly. Healthcare is changing. The tax scenario is changing. And by the time this podcast comes out, this information that I'm going to give you in a, in a minute, even though you'll have it in a week or two, may have changed. But for now, this is what we know. We know that right now, nearly half of all families have no retirement account savings at all. That's according to the folks at eBRI. And that's why all the talk of slashing the amount of pre-tax money that Americans can put away in their 401k plans each year from $18,000 to $2,400 is so troubling. And note that 18000 is for people who haven't hit their 50th birthday. Once you hit it, you can kick in $24,000. Happy birthday to me. So note, it's not like you couldn't put in more, but the remaining money above and beyond that 2400 that you contributed would be treated as a Roth contribution, which is taxed when you put it in, not when you take it out. 
And there's conflicting research on the impact that this might have. A study conducted by economists at Harvard and Yale looked at about a dozen nearly large companies that have added a Roth option to their 401k plans and found contribution levels didn't change. That is really good news. But as an analysis by Ebre shows, more than half of the roughly 55 million American workers who save in retirement accounts are contributing more than that 2,400 a year, and they'd all feel the change in their paychecks. This, like I said, is being batted around as part of the tax plan, the tax proposals in Washington D.C. We are watching. And we'll let you know if and when there is a change that you should act on. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Nancy for a great conversation. We will all be sleeping a little bit better tonight. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show. Please leave us a review. Please send us your questions. You can do that at Gene at GeneChatsky dot com. Of course, we want to thank our sponsor Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with financial journalist Stacy Tisdale, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>